Empower Radio presents the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. You're listening to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Each week we gather right here to make connections that break through the illusion of separation. And the list of global problems is massive and overwhelming. We know that list as a part of that illusion of separation. When confronted with such significant problems, our first instinct is to tell the bad guys to stop being bad. Our guest today believes the reason we see so many angry people is because they genuinely care. But they seem to get stuck at being angry. He says that if you spend a tiny fraction of that time doing the things mentioned in his book, your global positive impact will be a thousand times greater. I love that, even that phrase, your, your, your personal global positive impact will be a thousand times greater. Doesn't that sound nice? I invite you to take a few deep breaths, open your mind and heart and settle into your essential wholeness as I introduce our guest. Paul Wheaton, dubbed the Duke of Permaculture by Sepp Holzer and Jeff Lawton, is an author, producer, certified advanced master gardener, and tyrannical ruler of two online empires. Are you getting the picture that he is a fun guy too, just by me reading this bio? After a successful career as a software engineer in aerospace, Paul became obsessed with everything permaculture. He has created hundreds of YouTube videos, hundreds of podcasts, and written dozens of articles. Paul is the author of Building a Better World in Your Backyard, instead of being angry at bad guys. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you, Julie. This is uh this is fun. Let's it, let's do it. Let's do it. It is fun. And and I have to tell you, the the book is just fun to pick up. And I love that it's full of cool little diagrams and art and drawings and it it is just so fun and I could pick up on your energy right away so I'm really looking forward to this but I'm going to begin with my traditional first question Paul and um, we'll see where this conversation wants to go after that because our traditional first question tries to set our conversation in this larger context of a whole worldview so According to the title of our show, Paul, what does all things connected mean to you? Oh, all things connected. Um, I think, I mean, I'm bonkers about permaculture, and I believe that that's in many ways the definition of permaculture. Um, I, I, before hearing the word permaculture, I bought 80 acres and what I uh, called what I was trying to do on the 80 acres was a full farm ecosystem where systems feed systems feed systems. All things are connected. I think all things are intended to be connected. And where things go wonky is where we step in and disconnect for some reason. Um, I believe that permaculture is a more symbiotic relationship with nature so that I can be even lazier. And uh, it's taking advantage of those 
connections. It's taking advantage of the design that's already in place, the, the connected design that's already in place, and and riding with it instead of fighting against it. Um, romancing nature instead of forcing nature to be your servant. Mm. Okay, so we're going to talk a lot about permaculture during this hour, I know. But, Paul, I am really curious, and I imagine all of our listeners all too are too, that here you are, a software engineer in aerospace who becomes obsessed with permaculture. What is your story, and how did you fall in love with permaculture and, and change your life trajectory? I would say that I came to permaculture the same way nearly everybody comes to permaculture. And that is I started off as a gardener and uh, I just one year, I, I grew a garden one year and nearly everything died. And I was so distraught that I felt like I had to make good on it. So the following year, I read over a hundred books on gardening and grew a magnificent garden. And that was the beginning of a great obsession. And then <clears throat> about 10 years later, I was asking the question, why is permaculture not a household word? Why is it that we're not like, like everybody is keen on this? Or at least, you know, more people, like a third of the people are, you know, why not? What's what happened? Why is this not getting further? So I believe I came across the why and I realized that things needed to be done. And, and so I tried to approach the people that seemed the most likely to be able to get the change that was to, to do the change that was in my head. And I realized that they're not going to, and that if the change is going to happen that I wish to seek, that I would need to forfeit my career and instead pursue this path. And uh, which was easy to do because I was so obsessed with gardening, which led to being obsessed about permaculture. Um, and I, it's, I, I can't seem to stop doing it. I, I just keep going and going and going. And at this point in time, I have uttered the word permaculture to more than a hundred million people. Um, and I, I need to keep going and I can't, I just can't stop. <laughs> well, you, you, Really, part of your story is an important piece here is that why isn't permaculture a household name? Like, why isn't it a household word that everyone's aware of? Most of my listeners probably know exactly what permaculture is. But let's just for that few, few people out there that might not know, what is permaculture in a nutshell? How would you describe, explain permaculture? I think every permi has a different description and a lot of them um, take like uh, several minutes to say, and it's got a lot of great big words in it. And um, frankly, when I hear them say it, it's like a lot of times I don't even understand what they're saying. Um, I, uh, I have embraced this, this phrase, you know, the one I mentioned a moment ago, permaculture is a more symbiotic relationship so that I can be even lazier. <laughs> I, I think that if you work with nature then there's a, a massive buffet of benefits and uh, it's about understanding the difference. If 
if I can take one minute, I, I have a way of trying to describe this. We come from permaculture or we come from gardening backgrounds. And so what is the difference between organic gardening and permaculture gardening? And I think that the answer is, is that suppose that you have several rows of potatoes in your flat garden and you see Colorado potato beetles taking, taking over your potatoes. Um, so your first thought is, is, is an organic gardener is I must kill the Colorado potato beetles. I need to get little tiny machine guns and shoot them all down. Death and die, 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 die. Um, Whereas in a permaculture system, your landscape will have texture. You will have hugel cultures and berms, and, and it won't be flat. And so you'll have warm spots and cold spots. and There'll be diversity in so many different ways. And then you'll have potato plants all over the place mixed in with all the other garden plants that you want. And if you see Colorado potato beetles on one potato plant, then and you observe this, Rather than thinking, oh, no, i got to kill those, you think the Colorado potato beetle is part of nature. And so nature is saying, this plant doesn't belong here. Don't worry. I'll take it out and we'll grow something else here. And in the meantime, you've got potato plants growing in other places, which seem to have no Colorado potato beetles. They're in places that are a better fit for potatoes. This particular potato plant with the beetles is not a good spot for potato plant. And so it's going to do poorly and, and nature's going to take it out. And maybe sunflowers will grow here instead. Does this that's, help paint a picture? Yeah, that's a great example. That is a great example. I love that. Thanks, Paul. Yeah. And okay, so I love the title of your book for for many reasons, but a couple in particular. I love the title of your book. I appreciate how you share the idea that building a better world is right in our backyard. Like we literally can build a better world in our backyard. That's cool. And then it's so real and personal and empowering. It's like, I can even do this. And you just gave an example of learning from the cycles of nature itself. And then we have this notion of instead of being angry at bad guys. So it's all brilliant. Let's, we often get stuck in that anger, but let's, let's begin. That's an important part of the story, but let's begin first with this, with your vision. <laughs> I'm really curious. What does a better world look like to you? Have you ever read the book Ecotopia? I have perused through it, and I haven't read it cover to cover, but I've seen okay. it, and it's Let's in my just, I'll say that it, it influenced me greatly. I read it when I was a teenager, and to me, a lot of the things that they talked about really, really moved me. Um. So I would say that a better world is where I have the opportunity to live in a community of like-minded folk um, and to be able to um, feed myself. I think that in the book, I tell the story of Ferd and Gert. And what I keep thinking of as what is the better world is, is the story of Gert. And Gert is the story of a what I call a permaculture millionaire 
in that um, Gert owns her own humble home and has a significant garden. And she no longer works, not because she's unemployed and desperate for work, but because she doesn't have to. She, um, because she's meeting all of her own needs, then um, uh, this, this environment that she has now produces a small income for her to pay for a variety of little things. And so effectively she's retired at the age of 35. And so this is the world I seek. I know it's not for everybody, but I think it's for many. I think that I think that there's a lot of people that would seek the life of Gert if they knew how simple and easy it could be. I think that a lot of people think about a garden and to them it seems like a lot of work. I, I also want to squeeze in here just really quick that I that the first half of my book is for people that either have a yard or they don't have a yard. So it includes apartment dwellers as well as people that have yards and maybe even acres. And then for people that live in an apartment, I suspect a lot of them will talk about things like nuclear power or gasoline or solar power or things like that, even though they don't own a nuclear power plant, they'll still talk about it. And so the second half of the book, while it's focused on backyards and very large backyards, you don't have to own one to develop an understanding of this space. All right, back to the thing about Gert. Um, when, when we retire, any of us, when, when we retire, what do we seek? What, what do we, what does our retired life look like? What do we want our retired life to look like? And so I wish to paint this picture of Gert and suggest it as a, as a possible destination for retirement. And then if the reader is like, that does sound rather beautiful and amazing, then Let's talk about how to get there in three years instead of 30 or maybe 20, however long it is that a person has to go until retirement. I think a lot of people, they work their entire lives and then they get to retire and then they don't know what to do now. And everything seems weak. And so I, I wish to at least paint a picture of something that might be magnificent. Does this answer your question? Yeah, the building a better world is this whole, and it's not like a utopia that's pie in the sky. How you paint it in your book is very real. I, I see the steps and I, I'm with you. So I'm wondering what you might say. I want to get into the the anger part too, but let's pause here. I have a couple more questions because what, how would you encourage those who are busy working, commuting, taking care of life as they know it? How do you introduce this radical change for those who think they're too busy and trapped in their lifestyle? Like, are you kidding? Retire in three years at 35? The, the picture of Gert and how you painted it in the book is so doable. But what would you say to those listeners that are going, yeah, right. Ooh, um, 
Well, uh, I think it's going to be a list of little things. And, and I think in order to be able to believe it, then try a few of the things, the things that seem most tryable, and then if they work out for you, then maybe try more things in the book. But I, I kind of feel like a lot of the things I talk about in the book are going to put more money in your pocket, make your life more luxuriant, and give you more time. I mean, I don't think there's anything in the book about sacrifice. So it's so you're saying like uh, how do you how do you find the time? And I'm thinking kind of like I'd like to think that the book generates time for people as well as money and opulence. Um, I I I'm going to give probably what I think is my favorite example of of how to gain time have less toxicity in your life, have more money in your pocket, and save the world. And so this is, I like this example because this is probably the simplest, easiest thing that you can do. And anybody can do it, whether you're in an apartment or not. And I'm not sure, have, have on your show, have you ever talked about going poo-less? <laughs> no, I love your term too. No, no guest has ever introduced that idea. You're the very first in this book. So <laughs> now you said it out loud, going poo-less. Our listeners are going, what does that mean? Oh my gosh. I love this concept. <laughs> I love it, love it, love it. And it sounds like you're going to gain a lot of weight, doesn't it? <laughs> it it kind of does, doesn't it? <laughs> or you're going to be really sick or not feeling well. But no, this is a cool concept. And I have tried it for days, but I haven't tried it as long as you. So let's tell the guests, what does that mean? Okay. So um, now, now brace yourself. For some people, it's hard to digest. And the, I admit the first time I heard it, I thought it was crazy and I'm never going to do that. And then it took year. it was years later that I finally tried it for one week and at the end of the week, I was amazed and thought it was great. Now, this is that's usually what we hear. And so basically the concept is to, to continue to shower and wash as often as you already do, except you eliminate the soap and shampoo component from that. Generally showering. The typical American shower is seven and a half to eight and a half minutes long. But when you do it without the soap and shampoo, it's generally a little more than a minute. It turns out that 99% of your body funk is water soluble. You don't need the soap. In fact, the soap, its job is to make oils be water soluble. And then at the same time, your soap tends to have a moisturizer in it, which is a type of oil. So it's going to take oils off of you and put new oils back on you. Only the new oils tend to be a petroleum product and it tends to have a certain level of toxicity. And on top of that, it also tends to attract dirt. So the soap you use will clean you more thoroughly in the short run in the shower. But by the end of the day, you're dirtier than if you didn't use it. So. People that use this, people that go down, that try this technique, 
that after a week, they report having thicker, more luxuriant hair. In fact, generally people say it's the most luxuriant their hair has ever been and that they have better skin, fewer skin problems. Several people report that ailments that they've been suffering from for decades suddenly just go away. And uh, now here's, here's the big benefits. You're not spending as much on those products. Um, you're putting less toxic gick on yourself, so you're probably going to be healthier. And when it comes to energy, which so much of the book is about energy, then this is the number one way to cut back on your hot water because your shower went from seven and a half minutes to a little over a minute. No sacrifice. Take as much time as you want. In fact, take a longer shower. But I tell you that when I go in there and I take a shower now, I get bored. <laughs> There's <laughs> nothing to do. It's like, ah, I'm done taking a shower. I'm bored. And so have I just gained six minutes a day, which for a lot of people, if they could sleep in an extra six minutes, that would be delicious. So uh, is it making your life more luxuriant? I mean, more luxuriant hair, more time, more money. Is this, is this kind of fits the bill? This is kind of like what, this is my shortest explanation to give an idea of what the whole book is about. It's a, it's a big, long parade of things like this, but. It is a delightful parade of things like that and um, filled with common sense things and also fun, creative ideas that you perhaps have never considered. But I just want to say the Poulis piece, you mentioned that, you know, talking about the toxins too, the guy with the migraines, tell us about the shift in him. Oh, um, so I have a podcast, uh, put out a few, few hundred podcasts, and I think somewhere around podcast number 150 or so, I said something about the Poulis. Now I'm trying it, and this is my result so far, and uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so he wrote to me, and he said that for over 20 years, he's been suffering from daily migraines to such an extreme that he once a week he'll either black out or um, uh, vomit or both. And then he switched to Poulis, and about seven days later, his migraines went away. A month after that, he thought, okay, just to be sure, I'm going to use the shampoo one more time. Within two hours, the migraine was back. And so he feels like eh, it's anecdotal, but it's worth mentioning. And it's possibly worth exploring further. But for him... Poulis was the big save for a life of migraines. Yeah, it's fascinating. We all can go, yes, when we understand the toxins of what we put on our body and in our body, we start to make sense out of some of these suggestions going, oh yeah, of course, I understand that. And the idea about our body oils and literally... I love that you're substituting one oil from another when you're when you're using this that idea. My husband and I, when we would sit in an infrared sauna and just sweat, both of us felt 
cleaner. I have to tell you, it sounds so weird. We feel clean. Our skin is so soft and neither of us want to shower. Like neither of us want to, to shower or bathe after that because it's such a different kind of experience with our skin. And I think that's kind of, I'm imagining that going poolless is is like that, where our body knows how to clean itself. And we go into this pure, nice water and yeah. <laughs> so, Try it. Yeah. Try it for one week. Most people report it's like at the one week mark, that's when the magic is there. Because for the first few days, you've got that artificial stuff on you still, and it's attracting a lot of dirt. And so you need to kind of, you know, get past that. So you you have the weird hair <laughs> for a few days. and uh, But then it's like usually about the one-week mark that everybody reports like, wow, I feel amazing and I look good. Mm. You know, and Paul. after about three months, give up the deodorant. Um, you stink less. Mm. So... I'm just, imagining, too, so many people put not only just shampoo, the conditioner, but products, styling products afterward. And, yeah, to break that habit. And, yeah. Ooh, okay. So, and that's the simplest thing out of the book. The teeny, tiniest, simplest, quickest thing. Yeah. Easy to mention. Yeah. So, when I said... Tell those people who think they're too busy, that one's not going to take any time away from you. Okay, so we have to prepare for break here in just a second. And I want to let our listeners know we're going to talk about that angry. So remember, the title of this book is Building a Better World in Your Backyard Instead of Being Angry at Bad Guys. I still want to talk about the anger at bad guys piece, Paul. And then just like we did with Going Poolis, Paul has all kinds of other suggestions and ideas in this book. Yes, from growing the garden and feeding yourself to so many other fun things like the Going Poolis example that we just talked about. So, I'm Dr. Julie Kroll. You're listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. We're here with Paul Wheaton. And when we return, so much more on Building a Better World. We'll be right back. The Empower Meditation Channel. Non-stop meditation music 24 hours a day in the new Empower Radio app. Music to empower your meditation, help you relax, sleep, or provide a calm background while you work. The Empower Meditation Channel is interruption-free. Listen now with the Empower Radio app, free in the App Store, or listen online at empower.fm. Soothe your soul, calm your mind. The Empower Meditation Channel. So you see, son, good manners are very, very important. Someday, many years from now, when you're a grown-up, you'll be a man. And when you are, you should be a gentleman. 
Do you want me to go through it one more time? Yes. Yes, please. Yes, please. Exactly. Always say please, thank you, you're welcome, and excuse me. Sit up straight, hold doors open for ladies. If a door's shut, then knock first. Don't burp, don't swear, don't speak with a mouthful, don't reach across people's plates, keep your elbows off the table. What table? And don't interrupt. While we're at it, don't stare, don't use foul language, don't call people names, but do remember people's names. Always share your toys, play nice, and cover your mouth when you cough or sneeze. On the bus, give up your seat to anyone who has trouble standing. Bottom line, treat others the way you'd like to be treated. Got it? Got it. And stop picking your nose. Most parenting is hard to do in just two minutes. But spending just two minutes twice a day making sure they brush their teeth is easier and could help save them from a lifetime of tooth pain. For fun two-minute videos to watch while brushing, visit 2min2x.org. That's 2min2x.org. A message from the Partnership for Healthy Miles, Healthy Lives, and the Ag Council. is a test to find out if you know it all when it comes to children. Time starts now. Name one of the leading killers of U.S. children age 1 to 13. What's the best way to protect children in a car crash? At what age and size should a child start using a booster seat? Where can you find the answers to these questions? Car crashes are one of the leading killers of U.S. children. Many of those deaths could be prevented by making sure that kids are in the right seat for their age and size. Don't assume you know it all when it comes to car seats for your child. Go to safercar.gov slash the right seat and know for sure. That's safercar.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Dave, what are you doing? Just sending a gift to Dave2037. Who? Me in the future. I save a little money from every paycheck for Dave2037 so he can buy anti-gravity boots or a hologram Doberman. What are you getting Steve2037? Steve2037 will be just fine. Okay, but don't expect to borrow my anti-gravity boots. Save something for the future. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. For free ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. Back to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. Hey, if you're inspired by our conversation today, I invite you to share it with others and perhaps listen to it again. You can do that by visiting my website at thedrjulieshow.com, where you'll find all the archive links as well as a listing of upcoming guests. Again, that's thedrjulieshow.com. Also, stay connected all week on my Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation. I invite you to be a more conscious, courageous, and compassionate co-creator of the beautiful, healthy world we depend on. Come work with me. There's lots of ways you can do that. And you can check out those opportunities at either juliecrawl.com or goodofthewhole.org. I'm here today with Paul Wheaton, and you can find Paul's work at permies.com, P-E-R-M-I-E-S.com, and richsoil.com. Paul, is that the best way for them to get a hold of you? I would say yes. Um, if they go to permies.com slash BWB, that'll take you to the page about the book. And you can comment there on uh, all the I, – I would really love to hear advice on how to get the book to more people. I, I thoroughly believe that if the book uh, is shown to – or if 100 million people read the book, this will solve nearly all global problems. 
Okay, so you do some math and science in the book introducing that idea. And I, I want to give you some time to really address that of, of why do you think this will change the world? But let's start on the, again, the premise of this anger is that the book focuses on personal change rather than political change. And and you're saying in the the tagline here, instead of being angry at bad guys, we're spending a lot of time um, on the planet right now. There's so much happening with the evolution of consciousness and, and different kinds of movements cropping up everywhere that are revolutionary. And many people go to the streets anger and angry and demand change. And they're demanding change from that place of anger. So why did you focus on personal change rather than political change? And what do you say about that getting stuck in that anger? I like what Derek Jensen had to say about Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth. And so he basically said that if we do all of the things that Al Gore suggested in the movie, like if all Americans, every last one did all the things, that would cut our carbon footprint by 22%. But our carbon footprint grows by 2% each year. Therefore, in 11 years, we'd be right back where we started from. I feel that the recipe was weak. I I kind of feel like uh, there's so much more you can do. And And all of the things that he mentioned seemed to me to be about sacrifice. And I wish to make a better cookbook. Here's Mm -hmm. a a better collection of recipes that add luxury to your life and simultaneously do far more for solving global problems. Now, Al Gore was, of course, concerned about carbon footprint. And if we're going to talk about carbon footprint, those things, I mean, if they all added up, that would be for your personal carbon footprint, it would reduce it 22%, which is not enough. It doesn't really do anything. Um, whereas uh, the, the, I got a state that, that the average adult carbon footprint in the United States is 30 tons. So, um, uh, and I want to say, too, that a lot of people, when they're thinking about this, like, what can I do to solve my carbon footprint, that their thought is, is like, I'm going to buy a Tesla. I'm going to get a, an electric car. Well, that choice will save you two tons of carbon per year out of the 30. On the other hand, if you live in Montana or a cold climate state, um, if you switch from electric heat to a rocket mass heater that will cut your carbon footprint by 27 tons. So as much as buying 14 Teslas. Mm. So it's, it's a far more significant thing. Now, as far as the thing about being angry at bad guys, that's kind of what the political thing is. It's, it's kind of like what Al Gore was suggesting. It's like what a lot of these movies are suggesting is that we need to talk to our politicians about going and forcing these certain entities to behave a certain way. And then, then we'll be better off. And I kind of think like, A, that is, that is a rigged playing field. I mean, it's 
good that people are fighting the fight and keeping these people uh, held accountable. But I do believe it's a rigged playing field and you can only get so far. On the other hand, um, I, I think another one is, is like I had a friend who contacted me and he was so frustrated with fracking. And he was uh, telling me about how he was going out at least twice a week to protest about the fracking. And I asked him, well, what kind of heat do you have in your home? Natural gas. And it's kind of like, well, that's, that's the fracking. You are giving money to the natural gas company. to, And then in order to meet demand, they've elected to go with fracking. And um, so you're kind of, in a way, you're feeding the monster. And he's like, well, then I'm going to switch to electric. And I said, oh, but most of your electricity in your area is actually generated by natural gas. So you didn't get away from it. And he's like, well, what do I do? And so I have three significant suggestions, which are in the book. One of which would be the rocket mass heater, and another one would be um, what I call microheaters, heating the person instead of heating the whole house. And the third one being a building design change. But again, the question is, is about being angry. He was being angry at not only the natural gas company, but also the politicians which regulate the natural gas company. And all of his anger wasn't really doing anything. On the other hand, if all those people switch to a rocket mass heater, then there would be a significant dent in the amount of natural gas that was being consumed. And if, if enough people did it, then fracking wouldn't be worth it. And the fracking would, the, would shrivel up and blow away. We wouldn't have it anymore. We're voting with our pocketbooks. Effectively, yes. Yes. And, you know, so even this simple idea that I appreciate in the book is heating the people, not the whole house. It's like it helps it helps the, the reader to just reframe how we do things. We think um, and then you, you even talk. So so heat the person, not the whole house. And you talk about why not don't put it down to 50 and then turn it up to 72 and then put it down to 50 and then turn it. But you talk about how to do this effectively and, and you give really good prescriptions. It's, it's a very comprehensive suggestions here. So Paul, what are your, what are the top three to five suggestions that you really appreciate in the book? What are your favorites? Well, as long as we're talking about heat, Let's recognize that there are three types of heat. There's convective heat, which is the most popular in the United States. This is where we heat the air in the whole building, and then that air heats us. It is the least efficient form of heat. The next most efficient form of heat is radiant heat. So this is where we can see a heat source. We have line of sight with the heat source, and the part of us facing the heat source is warmed. Um, this is actually a relatively efficient form of heat. It's quite efficient. And then the most efficient form of heat is conductive heat. So a hot water bottle. I mean, if you have a hot water bottle and you hold it to you, it heats your body core so much that you could be sitting in a room that's 40 degrees and be perfectly comfortable without a coat, without blankets, without any of that stuff you'll be possibly even too warm. 
And radiant heat comes in a variety of sources. All you need to do is to be able to touch something that's warm and it warms you. All right, let's go back to radiant heat for a moment. This is where uh, an old school incandescent light bulb um, provides radiant heat. Now, of course, they've been banned because uh, because people errantly believed that other forms of, of light, such as LED or CFL, provide more light per watt. And there is some truth to that. But the big thing is, is like, okay, so I live in Montana. So for anybody that lives in a cold climate, it especially when you're further north, in the wintertime, your days get to be short and you wish to have more light and more heat. So when you turn on a light and that light is directed to you and near you, you are dramatically warmed. And um, for example, in the book, I talk about having a dog bed heater at your feet and then a lamp above you, not too far away. And then it's possible that if you do this, you'll become too warm, and then you'll turn down the thermostat. Not for sacrifice, but because uh, for further comfort, you wish to turn the thermostat from 72 down to, say, 65, and maybe eventually down to 60 or 55 to be comfortable because your environment is just that warm. Now, I've got experiments on YouTube that are showing this off where we have a woman who is not in a park or anything like that and that demonstrates being dressed normally. There's a thermometer near her, very large, that you can see on the video, and it shows 50. And we have 82.5 watts of microheaters. And we ask her, what does it feel like? And she says it Feels like 70 or 75. She's perfectly warm. She has a dog bed heater at her feet. She has the lamp above her. And she has, she's working at a desk and she has a heated keyboard and mouse. And um, so the video sample goes for half an hour and we condensed it down. And at the end of the half an hour, we ask her, are you cold yet? No, I'm still perfectly fine. And then we turn it all off, and yes, she then gets cold. Um, the, the key is this is simple. This is so very simple. And anybody can do it. And, and um, in the book, we talk about an example of on a couch. If you're going to sit on a couch and, and watch television, perhaps, then you could rig something up at the couch. There's all kinds of different places to do this. And, and then basically, you can always tell whether it's turned on or not because the light is on there. And so if you want to turn it off, then because you're leaving the room, it's like turning off the lights when you leave a room. So I did this for an entire winter uh, back when I lived by myself and had electric heat. And I saved $900 on my heating bill and I felt perfectly comfortable. Therefore, I want to state that an incandescent light bulb saved me $900 in electricity as opposed to an LED light bulb, which claims to be able to save maybe $2 per year. Now, we've got a whole chapter dedicated to the LED light bulb thing. And the reason why we have to have it in the book 
is not because it's a great advantage or anything. Basically, we talked about how the LED is not what they claim it is. And there's, I mean, it can make you sick. But really, what we what we have to emphasize, in fact, we have to, we state it three times. The earlier versions of the book, we said it only once. And it was so difficult for people to grasp. We ended up having them to change the book to say it three times. The lighting stuff is so trivial, it just doesn't matter. And yet so many people are convinced that in order to save the environment or do something good for the environment, it's really all about the light bulbs. And it's not. The light bulbs are a red herring. That's, that's just something to keep you distracted um, you know, while they try and sell you things. Don't, don't buy into the light bulb thing. Well, you also talk about the the health. (laughs) I'll I'll remind you of the question in a second. But you also talk with the light bulb thing about our health and the the blue light and and sleep and what's happening. And so I just want to encourage the listeners. There's a whole chapter on light bulbs. And you want to hear Paul's wisdom on this. Um, Many large corporations are switching out everything to LEDs. And and if you're in an environment that has LEDs, you you want to read that chapter and, and understand what he's talking about here. So my question, Paul, which you kind of went into here, was I was asking, what are your what are your personal top three to five solutions in the book? And you talked about the radiant heat and the uh, well, the all three different kinds of heat, and then you talked about the light bulb. What else might be your top top of the list? Oh, I I gotta say that I think that. Um, Jeff Lawton is famous for saying all of the world's problems can be solved in a garden. And I, I don't think that that's absolutely true, but there is a lot of truth to it. And so I think that uh, when we're talking about solving world problems, uh, I, uh, I, I, wish, I wish to have people understand the value of gardening. And, and I wish to also share a recipe for getting... Uh, twice the food with one-tenth the effort. Um, Because I think I'm worried that a lot of people shy away from gardening because of the work. Um, But I think a garden solves so many problems. And I'm not saying that people have to go out and have a garden or a big garden. I, I am saying I appreciate the idea that people might understand how simple gardening can be. And so not because – so they don't have to do it. They, they pick which things are their most enjoyable, and they do those things. So for a list, I would put one of the big ones is about the garden. Uh, the next item I would say uh, would be a problem for which we still don't have a solution, and it's something which I am currently working on very hard, and that is um, community. and. I'm not talking about a community like our neighborhood, but I'm talking about 20 people living under one roof without stabbing each other. And I kind of feel like we've probably all lived in an environment where we had, uh, where we shared a home and somebody doesn't do the dishes or whatever. There's always stories. There's always drama. There are a few where everything worked out great, but for the most part, it has not been good. So how do we solve those problems? I mean, in America, we solve the problems by everybody has their own apartment. Everybody has their own house. 
And it's like, uh, we all have our own space. That's how we solve it. And, and in a way we almost encourage people to bicker amongst one another. And, and I would like to be able to find a path to get this, to not just work, but be magnificent Mm. because I, I think that if you can get together with people that you think are fantastic and share a roof, all of your expenses are cut in half. But even more, your footprint, your environmental footprint across the board is also cut in half. And suddenly there's several people in the house that are bonkers about gardening and several people in the house that are bonkers about cooking. And and everything starts to come together. But as I said, we currently do not have a really rock solid solution for everybody on this one yet. Not even half the population. We do have some, some things, but this is a story that's still in the works. But I do offer some things that might be helpful in that space. Yeah, you do. Intentional communities, um, more and more, they're popping up everywhere and um even just like the design of permaculture, there's there's resources out there to design an intentional community so you can get along. But like you're saying, Paul, there every one person or 1.5 people own a home and live by themselves or with one other person, and those homes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we all have a car, um, some of us more than one car per person. And then we we all have, I mean, think about everything within our homes and that are our possessions that we might use once a year instead of sharing the lawnmower with everyone on the block or sharing the drill or the you know whatever those possessions are that we don't need we use very seldom um yeah yeah i'm with you i'm with you with you this is a different way of looking at life but almost everything besides the garden paul Almost everything that you've mentioned today doesn't take extra time. So I just want the listeners to really pause and hear that because you didn't say you need to go work 20 hours a week in the garden and then you'll make an impact with this, uh, you know, with yourself and your global impact. You really are inviting us into a plethora of small new ways of really living day to day that make a global impact. So how does our personal create global impact? What if, I know you want to get this in many, many hands and I'm going to invite the listeners to share this with others, but what if we don't reach the amount of people that we need? Will we make a difference? I think that we will make a difference within our own selves. I mean, I, I like to think that you've now read my book and that your life will be richer and more magnificent for it. And then when the time comes to think about the global problems, you can know within your soul that you've taken your footprint down to zero. And, and this makes life more delicious for you. And then you've set an example. Your neighbor will, will observe what you're doing and they'll, they'll complain about their power bill. And you'll say, my power bill is now like 
a tenth of what it used to be. And when it comes to heat, that's down to zero now. And I do even less. Rather than spending all this time to go to the grocery store or go to a restaurant, I have an abundance of food here at my house. My life is delicious and magnificent. So your neighbor wants, also wants more magnificence, more luxuriance, more cash. And so then they pursue the things that they observe you pursuing. Yeah. And, you know, Paul, as I'm listening to you here, too, telling your neighbors, so many of us think that we have to put in these huge, expensive new systems to make a dent on our heating and air conditioning bills. So if we don't have solar heat, you know, we got the thousands of dollars um, investment just to get into it. I should say tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, depending on how large your home and where you're at. And really what you're introducing is none of that. It's like helping us understand how to reduce our own imprint very personally. And you're right. So I just want to say thank you for this book. Um, for me, there are so many of these solutions, these ideas, these creative new ways to build a better world in my backyard that I won't put the book down. And I, you know, I'd love to encourage our listeners to pick it up and pick one thing to try, whether it's going poolless, you know, or whether it's getting out a dog heater and putting that under your feet so you stay warm where you're sitting with that incandescent light bulb above your head. There's so many of these. How many chapters are there? 30? There's 32, 32 chapters. 32 and the book, chapters. The book is pretty lean, I think. Um, it's a pretty quick read. It's very lean. With those 32 chapters, there's only like 160 pages. It's very lean, and it's really delightful. Who's your artist? Uh, it's going to be Tracy Wandling. She's one of the staff at permies.com. Mm. She did a beautiful job illustrating this, and it's just fun. Every page has um, a sketch, and it's it's just really fun. So great. Thank you, Paul. I, I really appreciate what you're contributing here. I wonder in a minute or less, what do you really want to say to our listeners that you haven't had an opportunity to share yet? I would have to say uh, a rocket mass heater is worth knowing about, even if you're not going to build one. It is. Uh, it runs on wood. Most people can heat their homes all winter with nothing but the twigs that fall naturally off the trees in their yard. Um, you would think that it, uh, it, it heats your home with one-tenth of the wood. You would think that that would have one-tenth of the smoke, but really it's closer to one one-thousandth of the smoke. So the smoke is equivalent to that of about a candle. Um, it is amazing. It can be built in a weekend for about $200. And uh, um, we've got them here in Montana. They are magnificent. So I, I do think it's the number one thing I'm asked about in most, most uh, occasions. And um, it's worth learning a little bit more about. There you go. Page 51 of this important book. So, Paul, thank you. I appreciate you joining us here and sharing your wisdom and, and really doing it with a fun approach. Thank you so much. 
Thank you, Dr. Juliet. This was a good time. Oh, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did too, and I hope the listeners did. And I want to leave you with a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt, who said, in the long run, we shape our lives and we shape ourselves. The process never ends until we die. And the choices we make are ultimately our own responsibility. I encourage you to go out and check out this book, Building a Better World in Your Backyard, and make those choices of personal responsibility. You've been listening to The Dr. Julie Show. All things connected. Remember, together, we are creating connections for the good of the whole. Until next time, I'm sending you a world of love. Bye for now.